Hey there. Welcome to the Inner West Church Podcast. We're sorry the audio quality isn't great for the first four minutes, but we hope this sermon encourages you and blesses you as you follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Pray for us. Father, may your word dwell richly in us and bear much fruit to your glory and for our good. Amen. Uh, we are at the end of our series in Philippians. I hope it's been enjoyable for you and uh, enriching for your spiritual lives. Uh, and I pray that uh, the gospel is more evident to you, more wonderful to you, um, and more transformative for you. Uh, as we finished, we're in um, chapter four, and we're just going to be focusing on these last verses. As we do, you'll remember that um, right from the very beginning, uh, we've seen that Philippians is a book full of joy. And do you remember how we define joy right at the beginning of the series? We define joy as a delighted contentment in God. Uh, not the same as happiness, not the same as just feeling positive about things. No, joy is a deep-rooted emotional state that has the power to exist even in the presence of grief and sadness. Uh, Paul says early in this chapter, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Joy is something that you can practice. You can rejoice. You can rehearse it. Rehearse means to, to practice your joy, to let your joy spill out of you in your thoughts, in your conversations, in your prayers, in your songs, in your whole life. Paul says, let the joy out. Uh, one of the sources of Paul's rejoicing is the Philippians themselves. He, uh, he is delighted in how God has been working in them and through them. Remember back in chapter 1, he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. God has made the Philippians a blessing to Paul, a source of encouragement and support. Now, one, one really obvious way this has happened um, in that they provided a financial gift, we learned. I remember Epaphroditus was sent to Paul across country, um, a very dangerous and long journey bearing uh, a great financial gift, making his journey even more dangerous because in those days, robbers and thieves um, were all over the place in the wilderness areas. And so this is an act of costly generosity for the Philippians to show Paul their love. They're willing to give such a generous gift. And so Paul's heart is filled with joy. He's full of thanksgiving to them. But Paul is also a pastor. And so as they give this gift, he can't help but see this as an opportunity for discipleship. He uses this moment as a chance to clarify the true nature of Christian generosity. Now, I'm very aware that we've talked a fair bit about generosity recently. In fact, it's one of our commitments. And so John Tran uh, preached on it not that long ago. Uh, and we've been talking lots about finances recently because of our budget challenges. Um, but I want you to humor me <laughs> one more time. There's an old adage in church planting that when it comes to vision, uh, you should talk about it when people tell you they're sick of it. And then you should talk about it a little bit more. Uh, no one said they're sick of it yet. 
So here we go. <laughs> Maybe after this they will. Uh, Christians should be the most joyfully generous people on the planet. Joyfully generous, not just in giving, actually, but also in receiving. Uh, we have a bit of a weird relationship with receiving help, I think. Uh, I often spend way too much time in a department store looking for something because uh, for some reason I'm too embarrassed to ask a salesperson to help me find the thing. And so I go around and around and around the store trying to find it until eventually I get desperate and I ask for help. Do you do that? Uh, in the same department stores, I see people waiting in line, getting increasingly angry because they haven't received the help that they really feel like they're entitled to. Have you seen that? We have a bit of a problem with receiving help. Either it doesn't come quickly enough or we don't want to ask for it because we're embarrassed that we need it. But learning how to receive generosity is actually just as important as learning how to give generously. Look at how Paul reacts to receiving a very generous gift from the Philippians, not out of embarrassment. Oh, you shouldn't have. I don't really need it. You, you keep it. Like You're poor. What are you doing trying to give me money? doesn't say that. Not out of angry entitlement. Oh, thanks, Philippians. Well, you finally got around to it. Great. Well, do you know how long I've been in jail? Doesn't say it either. He's actually, he's grateful for the gift. But he doesn't rest his joy upon it. Whether he receives help or not, whether he finds himself in a place of abundance or lack, whether he is hungry or fed, in every situation, Paul strives to be content. There's a wonderful verse uh, in Proverbs that I think captures this kind of attitude. We heard it read before. I'll read it again. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. This is one of the Proverbs of Agar in Proverbs chapter 30. Uh, and he's on to something here. He says, if you're fixated on your wealth, what are you going to do? Well, you'll develop a feeling of security and independence. And so you'll say, I don't need God. I don't need anyone. I'm enough in and of myself. I'm self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-made. But if you're fixated on the, the opposite end of the spectrum of having not very much, then what then? Well, that's not a, a silver bullet, is it? Because you might become envious of others and perhaps even willing to act dishonestly to make up what you feel entitled to. One way leads to pride and stinginess. The other leads to envy, anger, and dishonesty. So what's the solution? Well, he says, give me neither too much nor too little. Just give me my daily bread. Then I will be content. Now, it's pretty tempting then to try and figure out exactly what that is. <laughs> how much or how little is daily bread? How much income? How many possessions? How can you economically define 
bread? Is there a formula for that? Is there a ratio for that? Well, there might be a valid conversation to be had about that, about trying to figure out what kind of what is enough. But at least here in Philippians, Paul says, actually, that's the wrong question. Because contentment isn't actually tied to your economic circumstances at all. It's not about having much or little or find some sort of magical, perfect point in the middle somewhere. The secret to avoiding both envy and pride on one hand, stinginess and, and dishonesty on the other, is to look at whatever you have and say, this is truly enough. And that's hard, actually, because we are hardwired to be discontent. Our society is geared towards convincing us all that it isn't enough. Whatever you have, it isn't enough. It's not a high enough income. It's not a good enough job. It's not a nice enough house. It's not an exotic enough holiday. Uh, in fact, generally, it's true that the more you have, the more discontent you are. And our society is geared to making, ensuring that is the case. Contentment, true contentment, is a rare and magical beast. It's a unicorn. <laughs> Something that maybe the spiritual greats might have realized, but the rest of us just stuck in cycles of discontentment. Well, actually, Paul is one of those spiritual greats, one of the greatest spiritual thinkers and practitioners of all time. And yet he makes this claim. He says, real contentment is absolutely available to everyone. And not through feats of great self-discipline, not through establishing or finding the ratio, the, the formula for the perfect middle ground. No, no, he says, no, that's not how you get it. How do you get it? Not through your own spiritual performance. Something else. Verse 13 is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Uh, as part of a Sunday school song that I've still got stuck in my head, what, 25 years later? I can do all things, all things, all things. I can do all things. Your Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. Ride my skateboard? All things. Do my homework? All things. Love my best friend? All things. That's how the song went, in case you're wondering. It wasn't just waxing lyrical. Evander Holyfield famously um, emblazoned this verse on his boxing shorts, not his boxer shorts, his boxing shorts when he went to fight Mike Tyson. I can do all things, even beat up Mike Tyson. I can't remember if he did or not, if it worked, but it only takes us about a second to read the context of this verse to realize that is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that through some magical way, all things are possible for Christians. Not saying that at all. What are the things that Paul can do with God's strength? Not all things, these things. <laughs> these things. I can learn to be very specifically, delightfully and joyfully content with my lot through God's strength. That is what he means. That's what verse 13 means. I can do all things, I can do these things. I can be content, truly, truly content. How? Well, the answer um, comes down in verse 19. He says, and my God will meet all your needs 
and presumably all his needs as well, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Next to God's wealth, our needs are a drop in the ocean, uh, a grain of sand on the seashore. And God promises out of his abundance to fill our every need. Not at every want, notice, but our every need. God's no genie who just uh, is obliged to answer our every wish. I think we know that. But he is a father who lovingly provides for our every need. And like any earthly parent, he often knows what is best for us better than we do. He knows our needs better than we do, our spiritual needs, our physical needs, our emotional needs. Jesus said, God clothes the, the, the birds of the air and the flowers in the field, and you are far more important than birds and flowers. God will provide for our every need. So someone will say, well, What about if we find ourselves in abject poverty? Does that mean that God doesn't care? Well, if the promise was limited to our earthly situation, our earthly experience, then yes, God would be massively unfair to give, to allow some to be be rich and wealthy and have much and others to have absolutely nothing. But as many Christians in impoverishment know, far better than those in wealthier places, the promise is far more realized in the next life than this one. Not that it's not our duty and and privilege to fill up the needs of those who lack, absolutely. But those who are in poverty don't have to rely on that because there is an inheritance that is eternal waiting for all of them. See how Paul understands God's wealth. He says, they are in the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Because the fortunes of the world go up and down all the time, true wealth must then lie in that which is unchangeable, what does not go up and down all the time. So when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread, and do we pray for God's provision in practical ways? Yes, of course we do. But far more than that, we pray for the bread of life, the bread that always satisfies When Jesus came saying, I am the bread of life, this is what he was claiming, that to know him and to be held by him is enough for life, that his words, his deeds, his truth are what nourishes our souls and perhaps even our bodies. The feed on him is to trust that in him we are God's children and he will never abandon us and never leave us to fend for ourselves, that our bodies and spirits are secure against death itself and that a life forever in a new heaven and a new earth with glories and pleasures untold are waiting for us. So contentment, true contentment, is only possible to the extent that Christ is your wealth, that Christ is your abundance, that Christ is your riches, because only he does not go up and down, only he is unchangeable, only he does not change the circumstances And he alone has signed and sealed his promises and his purposes for us. The central point, the the high point of Philippians, Kirsten preached on it, is that God in Christ emptied himself and became nothing to give us everything. Emptied himself of what? His divinity? No. He emptied himself of his opulence. 
He became ordinary, poor, lacking a home, lacking financial security. He took on our poverty so that we could access his riches. And to the extent that you know you already have everything that truly matters is the extent to which you can be content with everything you have. You can say in abundance and in lack, I am content, Christ is enough. Contentment changes how we give and how we receive. Contentment means you can actually receive help and you can even ask for help much more willingly and quickly than otherwise without feeling embarrassed that you are in need because you aren't fixated on your own ability to help yourself. You're not fixated on being in lack and without feeling entitled because you know that anything you receive is a gift of grace from God because you're not fixated on being in abundance. Contentment enhances thankfulness because the generosity being offered to you isn't overshadowed by a preoccupation with your own circumstances. Contentment helps you receive. And I know that we struggle with this. We need to be more content in order to be better able to humbly and gratefully receive. And of course, it helps you give because if your satisfaction isn't linked to how much you have, then, the give, then giving becomes cheerful, not begrudging, generous, not stingy. Because if you know that all the riches of Christ are yours, then you'll trust Jesus when he said it truly is better to give than to receive. Because if it was better for Christ to give than to receive, then it's better for us as his people. The condition of contentment, the soil, <laughs> The potting mix of contentment is, helps us be generous in how we give and receive. Uh, but there's more to it. There's not just the right content or the right condition, it's also the right logic that enhances and takes us even further. Uh, imagine that uh, Paul, writing verses 10 to 14, was soldering in Microsoft Word. In verses 15 to 18, imagine that he now switches over. He alt-tabs to, to Excel. And he goes up to the tab at the bottom and he clicks formula and then he clicks accounting. Some of you are like, yeah, you've got me now. I'm all about this. And I'm kind of not kidding, actually. <laughs> uh, people expert in the original language in Greek have noticed that Paul's language changes here and he starts utilizing some, some very technical language that was used in ancient times by accountants. Like what? Why? Uh, look, giving and receiving, credited to your account, full payment. These are accounting terms. Why would he do that? Well, maybe lots of the Philippians were accountants and he's just contextualizing. Don't know, maybe. Uh, but maybe there's a better answer. He's saying, I think, that when it comes to Christian giving, there is a rationale as logical as maths. But it's not the logic you expect. It's an upside-down logic. Look at verse 15. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. 
For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I love this. Uh, as a pastor, and even as the beneficiary of their gift, Paul is not afraid to say, I want you to give and give more. He's not afraid, He's not ashamed or embarrassed about that. He actually says, not that I can receive your gift, not that I can benefit from it, even though he does, but so you benefit. Paul is blatantly saying, the more you give, the more you receive. Imagine you found a reward scheme where for every dollar you spent, you got a dollar fifty credit back. You'd be all about it to your friends, wouldn't you? Texting them, get onto this thing. It's free money. Maybe that's what's happening here. Is that, is, that, is that what's happening here? Is that what it means to have more credited to your account? Well, we have to be a bit careful because I grew up in a church where uh, they, they actually heavily implied that literally, that the more you gave financially, the more you would receive financially. And actually there was a formula for it. And so kid you not, here I was with my little cal calculator on my little, on my digital watch, working out that if I give to this missionary, now that's like a hundred dollars, like 30% more. And this is working out well for me. I literally did that. Is that what I mean? Is that what they're on about? Um, what is it to be credited to your account? Is it more money? Well, no, I don't think so. I think we've already seen it, actually. It's more of Christ. The riches of God's glory in Christ Jesus were far more than gold. When you give, that is what is credited to your account. Every time you give cheerfully, joyfully, generously, your heart is turned towards God and his abundance fills your vision. You are more content, you are more attuned to his will and his purposes. And your heart becomes a little less entangled with your money and your things. The more you give, the more you love them less and the, and the more you love God more. Simply put, if you let go of something valuable, you now have a hand free to grab something more valuable. And that's why Paul calls their gifts to him a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Yeah, he's switching languages again and picking that up from Leviticus, you know, which talks about the offerings in the sanctuary, um, about how people should act towards God. He's not talking about a sin offering, you know, like what Jesus paid. No, he's not talking about that. He's, he's talking about um, an offering of thanksgiving something that would have been well known to the Jews, giving back to God what was already his, a sacrifice of gratitude. This is easy to say, hard to get, because how much do we really believe that the more we give, the more we get? I think we give for all sorts of motivations. We give to, because it makes us feel good. We give because... It makes us feel our, we feel fulfilled our obligations, makes us feel less guilty, maybe even gives us a bit more status. We give for all, all sorts of reasons. How much do we give because we truly believe that the more we give, something spiritual happens and we get more of God? 
And let me be honest, um, as a pastor in charge of a church with a budget, I'm always tempted to try and get us to give to primarily meet our financial needs. That is always before me. <laughs> the temptation to want people to give for that motivation to meet our financial needs. That's not unimportant. But in this moment, let me say, what I care about far more than our budget is that more be credited to your account and my account as we give. That we give not out of obligation, but out of worship. That we give to get more of God. And yet Charles Spurgeon, the old British preacher, was right when he says that the last part of a person to be converted is their wallet. Because money is directly connected to the things that we sometimes believe hold our security and our happiness. And letting go is hard because it means dying to that. This is true. We will only grow spiritually as Christians, apprenticed to Jesus, to the extent that we learn to give joyfully. And when I say joyfully, I mean out of a delighted contentment in God. Not because we have to. Not so that God or others will be impressed. Not because if we don't, we might be found out and shamed. But give out of joy. Give out of delighted contentment in God. Give because all we need is Jesus, our daily bread. Give because in abundance or lack, God has supplied all our needs and will always supply our needs. Give because our Father in heaven is not a stingy Father, not withholding, but generous and abundant. And give because Christ emptied himself of his opulence to give us his riches. This is the weird upside-down logic of giving. Don't just give. Give because by giving you receive. And don't just actually give, but receive from others. Because if you refuse to let another brother or sister help you, if you avoid them giving to you to help you, then you might be withholding from them what God wants to credit to their account. So this upside-down logic helps us not just generously to give, but generously to receive from others. And we could finish here, but there is uh, one final missing piece. Because you could go away from thinking, oh, right, I get it. So the motivation here to give is because I get. And which is true, because God is a giving God and a good God. But Paul finishes in a way to make it clear that we can't just leverage this principle for a better life for ourselves. There's a purpose, a higher purpose to this. And it's right here at the end of the letter, verse 20, and I'll finish with this. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is good, and so he's, he always brings goodness into our lives. But here is when we know we are living in true worship. Uh, there's an old document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's an old way of training Christians, actually, in right doctrine. Uh, and it famously starts with this question and then an answer. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The ultimate purpose for generosity in giving and receiving and the ultimate purpose for every good deed is not to better our own lives, 
but to give glory to God. It's not to get the gifts, but to enjoy a relationship with the giver of gifts. And by doing so, a right relationship where God is shown to be glorious and good, the ultimate good. True joy comes when our delight and our contentment is not, in fact, in what we get from him, but simply in knowing him and worshipping him as God. And that's why the Bible says that when Christ returns to renew all things, when we see his glory face to face, then our joy will be complete because then our glorying will be perfect. But until then, we can glorify God together in giving and receiving and be thankful to him as more is credited to our accounts. To our accounts. Christians should be the most joyfully, contentedly generous people in the world in how we give and receive. As we give glory to God, let's ask God to give us strength to do all of these things. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we behold Christ more and more, as we rest more and more in how you have provided all our needs through the riches of his wonderful grace, may we learn to be content in every situation that we find ourselves. And out of that joyful, delighted in contentment, Help us to be the most generous people in how we give out of our own abundance as a thankful sacrifice to you and also in how we humbly receive help from others, their gifts, as we and all of us together increasingly have more credited to our account as we receive more of Christ. And as we know about him, may we love him. As we love him, may we serve him. And give us his strength, Father, to do all these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.